Most children have the experience of feeling unjustly blamed for something. Maybe you played a backyard game of baseball with your friends and in the course of the game, your friend hit a ball that shattered the neighbor's window. Of course, it was at your house, so all your friends ran away, leaving you to face the consequences. Or maybe you had a younger sibling who provoked you so much you lost your temper, which got your father's attention. Your dad would then dress you down saying, you ought to know better. Can't you get along with your sweet baby sister? I personally wouldn't know anything about this one. <laughs> yeah. All these things that happened like 35 years ago, I can, still, I can still remember. Or maybe you bore the brunt of other kids' aggression. Maybe you were the target of bullying. Whatever the case, you probably know what it means to be scapegoated, to be blamed for the misdeeds of another. Scapegoating isn't confined to childhood, though. It's been part of the human psyche since the dawn of civilization. There were even special rituals around blaming, making someone else take the blame. Say you were part of a city-state in the ancient Near East. One summer, drought strikes. The barley harvest fails. To the ancient mind, the gods must be angry, but why? Whatever the reason, someone had to take the fall. Sacrifice was demanded. To appease the gods, an individual would be singled out. Someone from the poorer classes, or someone who was disabled, or someone who was a criminal. That person would either be ritually killed or driven away from the community. Scapegoating is in a less ritualized form has continued throughout human history to the present day. In medieval Europe, Jews were scapegoated for everything from plagues to famine to infant mortality. Black Americans were lynched as scapegoats, especially during times of economic hardship. And ask any Muslim what their life has been like since 9-11. Our sinful selves always look for someone to blame for whatever is wrong in the world. Someone always needs to bear the brunt of our anxiety, our fear, and our rage, it seems. But even the ancients knew that there was something wrong with the revolving door of human scapegoats. The scapegoat ritual itself, where an animal is killed or driven off to purify a space where a people is very old, dating back some 24 centuries before the birth of Christ, at least. That's a good 18 centuries before Leviticus was redacted into the form we have now, more or less. So what's going on with this scapegoat ritual in Leviticus? How does that relate to Christ, to the forgiveness of sins, to the convoluted mess that is Matthew's passion narrative? And perhaps most importantly, what does this have to do with our lives now? Once again, the scapegoat ritual as well as the other rituals of the Day of Atonement are examples of the ex expansive mercy and goodness of God. The Day of Atonement has a long, storied history in Judaism. It continues to the present day as Yom Kippur, without animal sacrifice, but with prayer, penitence, and fasting. For Jews, this day marks the time when God forgives all sins, 
even and especially those committed unknowingly or those kept hidden. That was the purpose of the day to begin with, according to Leviticus. The redactors of Leviticus were idealists. The book of Deuteronomy says, surely this law isn't too hard for you. Leviticus has a bit more of a realistic take. People are going to sin. People are going to mess up. They knew that people sin and that such sin affects all of our relationships, especially our relationship with God. Even the high priest was prone to sin. This person who was supposed to approach the people, uh, a people on behalf of God and God on behalf of the people. It's like walking through a field after heavy rain. It's hard not to get mud on your shoes. So God provides a ritual means for forgiveness, incorporating the ritual of the scapegoat. No human victims are called for. Neither is the ritual to be done in a knee-jerk fashion. So it isn't like you have a plague and then suddenly, well, we have to, we have to sacrifice something. That isn't what this ritual, that's not the, it's not an occasional ritual. It's regular. It's supposed to be done on a regular basis. It's a reminder to the community that even though everyone sins, even though there are difficult times, God is consistently merciful. This mercy is extended even to the scapegoat itself, who is simply set free in the desert. Not tortured, not mistreated, there's nothing about that in the text itself. God is always ready to forgive his people. God is always ready to give us a fresh start. But despite God's merciful mandates here, we humans in our sinfulness still demand human victims. We seem to have this perverse need to blame someone, to hate someone for things that go wrong. It's the Democrats. It's the Republicans. It's Black Lives Matter. It's critical race theory. It's Fox News. Add your own convenient object of blame in that list. The problem isn't with any one of those. The problem is with us. The problem is with all of us. Our collective sinfulness is the problem. And in our collective human rage, our collective desire for blood, our need for someone to take the blame, past, present, and future, all of this came to its culmination at the trial of Jesus before Pilate. Matthew drew on this in his Passion narrative. And Matthew himself, clearly Jewish, drew on the atonement ritual from Leviticus 16 in painting the scene. Two men stand before Pilate with the same name. Did you notice that? Like the two goats before the high priest. Only there is, the imagery is there, but there isn't a one-to-one correlation. This isn't Aesop's fables. There isn't Jesus is this and Barabbas is this and Pilate is this. Jesus is not a mere scapegoat. He isn't released as Barabbas is, and Pilate is no high priest. Jesus' role transcends all three roles of high priest, sacrificial goat, and scapegoat. 
incorporates those roles and transcends all of them. Jesus' blood is indeed poured out to forgive sins, as he said at the Last Supper, Matthew 26, 28. And indeed, Jesus bears the brunt of the crowd's rage as the scapegoat bears the people's sins. But unlike the scapegoat, Jesus is in total control of what is happening. Unlike the sacrificial goat, Jesus is raised from the dead. Unlike the scapegoat, Jesus returns. Jesus' death and resurrection does far more than forgive our sins, too. After all, God has been forgiving sins for a very, very long time. More precisely, Jesus' death and resurrection frees us from having to be a certain way, from having to demand that someone suffer the consequences for the bad things that happen to us, from having to ostracize or hate those who are different from us, those who think differently from us. This doesn't mean a cheap kind of harmony where we all hold hands and sing Kumbaya, though I have nothing against Kumbaya. (laughs) But it does mean recognizing the image of God and the people we disagree with, even in those to whom we're most bitterly opposed. Can you imagine what it would be like if we took this freedom to be different seriously? If we didn't just come to communion for forgiveness like we go to the store for bananas. If we actually heeded the call to the new life God offers us, a life of freedom, where we are liberated from constant blame, from old grudges, from our ancient desire for revenge. There's an old prayer about this right before, right before Holy Communion in the Anglican Book of Common Prayer that I think sums up this hope, this hope to be different. Lord God of our fathers, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, Open our eyes to see your hand at work in the world about us. Deliver us from the presumption of coming to this table for solace only and not for strength, for pardon only and not for renewal. Let the grace of this holy communion make us one body, one spirit in Christ, that we may worthily serve the world in his name. God, help us to not only see God's hand at work in the world, but to see God's image in every human being, whoever they are. God, help us to be people who live free from our old hatreds, our old grudges. And God, help us when we do fall from sin to remember that God is always gracious, always merciful, willing to forgive, and abounding in steadfast love. For the sake of Christ, let it be so.